Rival Lockman here with Ship Talk. Very excited to be on with my buddy, Bob Trikansky, who's a staff SRE at MailShip. Bob, super excited to have you on today. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. I actually learned a lot from Bob. You know, it's Bob and I, a little bit of history. I used, Bob and I used to work together years ago, and then our, you know, kind of careers took... I took us to different places, but I always keep running into Bob in SRE-related events. So a lot of my learnings in reliability engineering actually comes from Bob. You know, he has, he's very well grounded in the profession. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about, if you don't know what an SRE even is, a site reliability engineering, we'll just talk about what is reliability, why is it important, what do these SREs do, how can you become an SRE, and anything in between that. So, Bob, let me ask you the, the first question, man. Like, what... Yeah, how how would you define site reliability engineering, or maybe some of the lead up to like how SREs became popular today? Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. So, site reliability engineering was an, an idiom defined by Google a couple of years ago, and essentially what they did is they took a lot of the toil or like repeatable, um, boring uh, work that just like wore on the engineers, mm -hmm. and they put software engineers into positions that are cla that were classically defined as systems systems roles so to give you a little background on that mm -hmm. many years ago when you would have a, a large scale website or a web app or whatever you would have uh, you'd have individual servers that were artisanally crafted so you would you would install the operating system by hand you would add apache and php and yep. all sorts of other packages like this and then each server was individual. Uh, we, we often call them uh, pets. So in, like in this particular idiom. So after a while, we realized that this wasn't tenable for, a, for num a number of reasons, like creating new servers is a process and it takes up a lot of time. And then keeping all of these servers up to date and making sure that they're on track for whatever we need them for uh, is bad. So. Uh, things like Puppet and Chef and Ansible started coming out where we could mm -hmm. automate server platforms. Next, we came out with all sorts of other things like uh, Mesos and Kubernetes that, allows, that allow us to do more infrastructure as code. So this all ties into site reliability engineering because site reliability engineers tend to uh, put, uh, put code on paper for mm -hmm. things that used to be uh, manual toilsome tasks. So the, the primary goal of a site reliability engineer is to automate away toil and to make a much better experience for the developers that work on your product. Yeah, that makes, makes perfect sense. It's kind of a natural evolution of like, and you, you like just like keep the listeners, like Bob made a very important point there. I always like to talk about engineering burdens. So back in the day, you know, back in my day, it used to be like a one engineer to maybe like 10 server ratio, right? Like, yeah, one engineer can, you know, maintain 10 servers, right? And that, that's asinine to think about today, but th that time wasn't that long ago because you had to go manually patch things, manually update things. And, you know, if you had to update the version of like something in an operating system, imagine how long it took you on your Windows laptop, just one of them, right? <laughs> now you do it via 10. Yeah, like that's how long stuff took. Versus today, if we're dealing with, like Bob mentioned a few containerization technologies like Kubernetes or Mesos. And, and so it, we're dealing in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to one engineer. And so like the approach that you have to take at scale is quite different. And this is where you know, the, the, I love what you said about artisanally crafted I thought of a beer when you said that artist of craft beer versus, 
you know, a keg of like PBR, right? Like which one is, both, both are, both are good in their use cases, right? But um, th- th- that's, that's, you hit the nail on the head, like, hey, just because of nature of the beast, nature of the, the firepower that we need, uh, the focus is a little bit different, uh, you know, kind of the approach. It, it is a much more software engineering based approach. Uh, actually, I, I stole that from Bob. Uh, a while ago, like he, he said it so beautifully, like, ah, you know, it's like software engineers facing system engineering problems. And, you know, if, I, I think a natural question for our listeners might be, well, Bob, a lot of what you said was like, sounds like a DevOps engineer helping out the engineers. But th- let's talk about somewhat of like your specific skills, your specific skill set more around reliability. And then we could talk about how you got there. Cause like, you know, I'm, if I was still an engineer, I would want to be an SRE, like, if I assume engineering. So but let's talk about some specific skills that an SRE like brings to the table. Let's say I was an app owner. I had Robbie's application. I was like, okay, you, you have enough traffic now. So you get an SRE. Like what would be some things that Bob would talk to me about? So SRE is very frequently defined differently at many different companies. Mm-hmm. The way that my company MailChimp handles site reliability engineering is we help to enable the developers continue their momentum with feature sets. And very frequently, this is done with something called the service level indicator and objective pattern. If you're curious about reading more about those, uh, we, I wrote a podcast for the Deliver Better uh, website that you can read about uh, SLIs and SLOs. It was really but, good. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot. Thanks, but the, to wrap it all up into a nice neat bow is service level indicators indicate the current state of a service and service level objectives are goals that you want to set for the service that you're working on. These both tie up into something called an SLA, which you may or may not be familiar with. That is normally the agreement, the service level agreement that you give to your customer. So like uh, very frequently people in software engineering will say, oh, I expect 99.9% uptime for this, or I expect to have very few errors, or I expect to have a good experience with uh, duration. So. These things are all measured and quantified and put into uh, monitoring patterns so that developers can can continue momentum until they recognize, oh, I need to be careful because the service level indicator that I have for my product isn't uh, up to snuff and the objective that we set isn't being met. So I need to slow down my my product velocity and ensure that uh, we're giving our customers the best experience possible. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think a lot of times, like what, like, like, so to bring in an expert like Bob, right? Like, I'll play devil's advocate. Used to be a, an app dev manager or, or app owner. You know, we we'd focus a lot on the SLA. Like, we had the API owned. We had to have a 500 millisecond response time, at least some sort of response, right? But that's it. Like, as as we get more sophisticated, you know, I only had a few endpoints, so it was like, okay, I own everything. But as we get more complicated. Uh, yeah, we have to have other ways to track, right? So like SLIs, SLOs, you know, you're leading up to the, the ultimate SLA, like subdividing things. So that's that's perfect helping. And I actually, that was the first time I ever heard that explanation of an SRE. <laughs> Usually they're, they're you know, it, it's it being developer focused that, you know, I, I like that type of championship, right? Like, hey, your partners, sometimes you need to focus on, are you, are your future velocity too fast versus are we doing quality work? or technical debt work to make sure that we're make, at least maintaining our mission. That's, that's actually a really solid, a, a really solid um, definition of it. So maybe for, okay. So that, yeah, that's how Google 
has this with their uh, with their SREs. They say, okay, we'll we'll be happy to have an SRE work on your product with you, but we have to set these service level indicators and objectives to make sure that we're reaching our goals. Uh, very frequently, it's so simple as a software engineer to go, oh, I just want to implement this additional feature, or oh, I just want to add this uh, this new pinwheel, or oh, I just want to add this that or the next thing. But what you have to remember is as the web continues to scale both horizontally and vertically, you need to ensure that your service has the ability to run first, and then second, run at a rate that's acceptable to your customers. If you start getting page load times that are 10 or 20 seconds, customers are gonna leave your, leave your site. If you start spewing out a lot of errors, customers aren't gonna to wanna to come back and they're gonna lose faith in your service. So you have to balance product momentum and stability. And that's what, uh, that's the, that's right in a site reliability engineer's wheelhouse. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited about SREs, you know, and I want to be one again. <laughs> but for some of the listeners, you know, who like, may be dipping their toes into like, you know, what, I have a long-term goal of being an SRE. But let's talk about your, your journey, Bob. Like if, if, let's say I was fresh out of like school, you know, what would you tell me about, I want to be more like Bob. How can you give me some coaching on that, Bob? That's a good question, Robbie. So right out of school, engineers are usually trained in a different manner than what happens in quote unquote, the real world, right? For sure. You learn about, you learn about data structures and algorithms. You might learn a couple different programming languages. You might learn uh, memory management or CPU utilization or, you know, whatever. But when you get into industry, you start recognizing like, okay, all of these, uh, all of these, things that we learned in computer science classes uh, are important and it's important to understand how they work, but we also need to make sure that we have the ability to implement these uh, programming languages and these idioms on actual computers to serve (laughs) actual customers. So the thing that I would tell a new software engineer that wants to move towards SRE is make sure that you're monitoring everything. When you push out a new feature, make sure you're understanding how the deployment process works. Make sure you understand how to monitor for errors and duration and request count and things like that. Uh, There is a very famous paper by Tom Wilkie about red metrics, request errors and duration. And that's a really great way to understand uh, like the importance of of monitoring those three things, the request rate, the error level, and the duration count. And so I think that that's the most important thing, like understand how to implement a logging pipeline properly, understand how to set alerts for when things aren't working as you expect. And that's like, that's a very large step towards being an SRE. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I think in my software engineering career, a lot of what you just mentioned there was usually like an afterthought, right? So like it used to be an afterthought, right? Okay. We need some sort of, alerting so like right when we're about to deploy new features like yeah i i think if we violate like some egregious sla you know let's just let let's alert just send it to like some sort of knock or something alert to it uh versus like you know it it actually it becomes very much to the forefront if you look at what happened the last you know five years right and that afterthought has become the forefront like hey you need to understand how to measure your application when you're building it and a lot of times that expertise is not what they teach you in school. It's not what they teach you when you're developing software. It's usually like, oh, let's include some log statement. That's usually what I would do, right? 
yeah, let's log it here. Then we'll turn the verbosity up if we do anything. But, you know, there's just definitely a science to it because you can impact a lot. Like the common, the common argument around turning logging up is that it takes a lot of horsepower to log something. And so there's, you know, Bob can definitely dissect the science of like, what, like when do you do certain things? How do you measure certain things? And this, and this leads me to, so I'll, I'll jump ahead to a more advanced SRE topic. And so when, when you start talking to like SREs and, and let's say they're trying to engage like the resilience of a system, Bob, there's a, there's a term called black box versus white box monitoring. So why don't we talk about in generic terms, what is a black box? What is a white box? And how does that change your approach when you, when you just do, do anything? Bob? Got it. So black box monitoring is monitoring where you act as the end user. You don't have the ability to see inside the distributed system that you're attempting to monitor. And then white box monitoring is just like a, a you can think of it as like a clear cube. You can see all the different mm -hmm. pieces of the puzzle that makes up a request to the application that you're serving. These are both very, very important for uh, monitoring the resiliency of a system. Black box monitoring is very important because it gives you empathy into, the, into how the end user sees your application. You, you can say, oh, this, this particular endpoint takes, like as Robbie mentioned, like 200 or 500 or 1,000 milliseconds to, to report back. And then you go, oh, wow, that's uh, way too long for this particular API endpoint, or that's way too long for this admin portal, or that's way too long for this mm -hmm. XYZ. Same thing with errors, same thing with the request rate. Like, you know, um, actually, I guess request rate, rate wouldn't really fit into that, but um, duration and errors are certainly very important for black box monitoring. For white box monitoring, that gives you the ability to look at all the different pieces of the request, right? Like, you may be making a request to an app server and a, or a database or a key value store or uh, some other distributed piece of technology that gives you the answer that you need so that you can respond to the client correctly. Mm -hmm. Being able to see all the different pieces of that distributed system helps you determine where a problem might be arising. Black box monitoring is really great to catch egregious errors and large scale things. Black box monitoring is also often completed from outside of your infrastructure. This is very important because if you have black box monitoring inside of your distributed system, your distributed system could fail and then your monitoring for your distributed system could fail, which, can, which puts you in a very, very bad place. Yeah, don't monitor the system you're monitoring with the system, right? So like, <laughs> yeah, it's some, some inception stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, black box monitoring is important to build that empathy and to understand when you're, where your system is failing from a customer perspective. White box monitoring is more for understanding where in what part of the chain is broken in your request flow. That's that's an awesome explanation. I think like that this, this cheating like you know at any sort of SRE event I go to, there's always some sort of talk about that, right? Like, hey, what do you have control over? versus what you don't have control over like just what that, that's actually a more ornate way it's actually a very good way versus what i heard usually it's like black box imagine it's like a piece of package software like siebel you know like you don't own it right and so you don't like it's up to the vendor like you know to kind of to tell you how to what what are they monitoring for versus an application let's say robbie inc yeah, Robbie, Robbie's what's for lunch application. Like, you know, I wrote it, so I have complete control over all the calls. And so we know how to like, we, we can have different ways of instrumenting it, different ways of measuring it versus like 
you know, thou shalt not touch this Java file, this jar <laughs> inside of Siebel, right? Like Oracle will come find you. Uh, uh, but that's, that's a very, very interesting way. I, I think what would be also a very intrinsic question, um, and this is always great to hear how an SRE would answer this question. You know, like it's, it's about technology choice. Like if let's say we wanted to look at a new technology, uh, everybody has a different answer. Like, oh, you know, feeds and speeds. This is the new cool, hot, shiny penny. But, <laughs> but as an SRE, let's say we were, I'm very curious about this these days too. Like if we were investigating any new technology, like, hey, I want to, let's say I work at MailChimp. It's like, Bob, I want to leverage, you know, the Kubernetes, <laughs> you might be using it there, but like let's say I'm the first team to do it, like I must have two of them because I, I read on an InfoQ <laughs> article, it's the latest and greatest. Like what would be some of your decision criteria? Like if you're like advising people, just any sort of new technology, like, like what would be your train of thought for that? So an, an ex coworker of mine, Dan McKinley wrote a great article. It's called choose, choose boring technology, which as a software engineer, isn't very fun or exciting, right? Everybody, <laughs> wants, true. To, everybody wants to use the, the new cool piece of software and everybody just always assumes, oh, you know, this, this new JavaScript framework or this new Kubernetes thing or this new um, logging pipeline or this new uh, pub sub queue or whatever, you know, whatever the new technology you're Those are all the about. new technologies. Yeah, you must be, <laughs> I see you, read, you read the info queue, sir, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on Hacker News before. Um, but what you have to remember is at the end of the day, all of us are that are working in the software field are getting paid to deliver some product to a, some customer, whether it be B2B, B2C, uh, internal developer tooling. doesn't really matter. We are all working to deliver software for somebody else. And this is important to remember because you have the, uh, if you, have the, uh, if you make the choice to choose boring software and only spend your, we call them innovation tokens. So like mm -hmm. a new project should have one innovation token. If you only spend your innovation tokens on something that's going to help the business, then you have the ability to still iterate and choose new technology that, you, that will be fruitful for the project that you're working on. And it allows you to slowly iterate into new software rather than just like, diving in the deep end and then floundering around for a while trying to make sure that all this that you understand all this new software if you implement new pieces of software slowly and methodically with good logging monitoring alerting documentation uh rollout strategy all of these things then you can slowly in, input introduce these new bits of technology uh in a meaningful way rather than just rushing in and shoving them all in that that was like the most insightful piece of advice I probably heard in the last year, right? Like it, it's it's uh it was it's actually very very artistic, you know, like how do you bring about change? Don't forget the fundamentals, right? I, I was thinking in the back of my head, let's say I was starting a new project today, so I want to be using Istio and Kafka and Kubernetes and I need two of those and Fluent D. Like <laughs> I wanna I want my resume to be like jam-packed, you know, like when I'm done. And and something that Bob and I had side conversations on. You know, outside the podcast would be, uh, don't be troubleshooting on the bleeding edge. Imagine I came up with some minimal viable product using Kafka, Kubernetes. Let's say even some sort of serverless like Knative. I'm using all the buzzwords. I have the buzzword app <laughs> or platform. You know, troubleshooting something on the bleeding edge, it, it, it's like you, when using something, one technology, even it compounds itself, 
using more than one technology that's on the bleeding edge, a lot of those operational fundamentals might not be there. Like there's still people bickering about how to, what's the best way to trace a metric on a distributed containerized workload, right? So like we, we can sit here and talk for like an hour on that, right? But like, th that's right. Like introducing one piece at a time, like once you get the fundamentals right, like, hey, this is the minimum standard of an app. So yeah, like very, very beautifully said there, Bob. Incremental success builds success. As the owner of a, uh, as the owner of Open Telemetry PHP, I can tell you that a distributed trace system is not easy ever. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you you do have a new package out there. Uh, maybe you want to talk about it in a minute, like, hey, what's your Open Telemetry PHP package? Like Bob has is bringing Open Telemetry. Actually, you're an author too. Let's plug Bob a little bit. Bob, I got your book. <laughs> It's over in the corner though. I need to get you to sign it next time I come visit you. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah, post, a post COVID book signing sounds good. <laughs> I want you to write a letter in my book. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote a book. It's called Handled On High Performance with Go. It's available on Amazon and PAC publishing websites. It's, it talks about how to implement Golang effectively uh, in your distributed systems. And I'm currently working on uh, the Open Telemetry project, which is a distributed traceable library, I am slowly and surely working with others to build the PHP version of this library. Contributors are welcome. Uh, <laughs> Open Telemetry is a new age tracing library that allows people to trace across distributed systems in a meaningful way and post the records to tracing aggregators that can help you determine where there is a fault in your system, sort of like the white box monitoring that we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Be sure to check out like the uh, Open Telemetry PHP or like you paste a link to like Bob's book. I, I got a copy of it. I'm learning a lot about Go, uh, that silly gopher and all of the gopher's needs. <laughs> from, from Bob. I'm glad that you brought that up, Ravi, because one of the really nice things in distributed systems now is uh, these companies are starting to distribute more um, visible binaries. So for, I'm going to use your jar example that we were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah. Like, so uh, Ravi was talking about Siebel, which is an accounting software that is that that's Oracle, right? Yeah, it's Oracle. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. it's like a financial and like customer service, like, like CRM software, but yeah. Sure. So previously Siebel would be a complete black box to Ravi, right? Like you uh, run that jar, and then maybe it'll give you some logging output if you're lucky. And yeah. you just have to hope that the, the, the Java um, virtual environment doesn't explode and spew bits everywhere. Now, one of the big site reliability engineering paradigms that's been very warmly welcomed is having something called an exporter that goes along with your, your particular uh, binary or service or whatever. And the exporter exposes some of the internal metrics for uh, a binary or a service or so on and so forth. And you can use services like Prometheus to uh, view the, those exports and determine what to do with your closed system. It's there, uh, this idea of an exporter and uh, using something like a time series bit like Prometheus is, mm -hmm. um, is really, it's a really nice way to monitor a uh, historically seen as black box monitor. Yeah. Uh, black box system. That makes a lot of like, th there's definitely a huge rise in that. Yeah, if, if, if folks are like seeing like, you know, going back to Hacker News and InfoQ, like words like Prometheus, Fluency, StatsD, 
<laughs> Jaeger, you know, like all these particular like CNCF projects that are out there, there, there's kind of like a meteoric rise in that. And it, it shows that, hey, there's different ways of thinking about monitoring, different ways of capturing metrics. So that exporter example is actually a great one because you're spot on. Like if the JVM crashed, I'm, you know, SOL, shit out of luck, right? Like with one, you know, you'll get a, you might get a crash report from the JVM, but that's it. Like the metrics would have stopped at some point versus having some sort of sidecar process. Like it's basically introducing like software engineering excellence into problems that were always an afterthought, right? Like if you and I sat down and we said, like, let's take it back like a decade ago, if like Bob would like, actually we might've been in the same team, <laughs> but like if we were still on the same, still on the same team. Um, you know, we, if we, instead of being an afterthought, we put it to a, like a forethought saying, we must make sure that we get metrics even in, in case of a crash. We would, we would organize our logging or organize the, the processes that, produce that in a different format, which we max the exporter to today, right? So like, it hasn't been a lot of catch up, but there's a lot of emphasis on being, uh, being more proactive versus reactive, right? So as these SLAs become more tight, you know, we require a lot of uptime. It's definitely a shift to becoming from becoming reactive. I need to wait that there's a problem versus, okay, we can like kind of like foresee that there's a problem. I, I, giving you a slight plug of like how consumer expectation uh, is just like, we expect things to be up all the time, right? So you, you just have to be proactive. Funny story, uh, you know, for the little better, we actually use Bob's company, MailChimp, uh, to manage all our contact lists. And so for some odd reason, like one, one it's actually like last week, I think, Bob, I, I couldn't log into MailChimp. And I was like, what? Like, I know exactly who I should go <laughs> talk to. And Bob's like, yeah, I got the on-call alert for your particular request. <laughs> it was you, Robbie. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. And then the, the problem was like resolved, like, you know, with very, very quickly. And I was like, hey, I can just try like a different <laughs> link, right? Don't worry about it. Um, but that was amazing, right? Like the amount of proactiveness that, you know, the, that's instilled at like MailChimp, uh, it shows that their SRE discipline is super strong, like, you're able to capture that I had a problem before, like, but then like milliseconds of me even knowing I had a problem. Like, what does that culture take, Bob? Like that, that's amazing stuff. So uh, this is, that's a great, that's a great lead in Robbie. I think this ties back to our service level indicators and objectives. I actually am disappointed in that incident because of the way that uh, you experienced downtime, but I am proud of the fact that we were able to quickly remediate the problem you had. That, so Having these metrics like we were just talking about, it's, this sort of all ties together now. <laughs> the, uh, having exporters export metrics and being able to monitor them, them over a long time gives us the ability to see uh, trends, right? So in your particular case, like uh, one server just started trending upward in CPU and disk utilization. And as we, as we caught that, we noticed that it was getting to a point where it, was, uh, where it needed to be fixed immediately. So it was fixed immediately. But we actually set an alert based on that trend. So the next time we start seeing that slow, uh, slow uh, S-curve up, we can start going up. Maybe we need to restart the service or uh, rate limit some uh, egregious API users or do some, you know, shed some load that, uh, that may or may not need to be um, shed, like, right? Like bot traffic or... Mm -hmm. um, or malicious people making requests or so on and so forth. So um, load prioritization is always super important. And the more that we can have visible insight into our systems, the faster we can react to 
these uh, these particular incidents. It's better than the yesteryear of oh man, uh, our Apache instances are completely smoked. Let's restart them all and see if that <laughs> fixes the problem. Please fix the problem. Now yeah. we have Kubernetes to do that restart for us. Yeah, yeah. Just kill, you know, put that readiness probe to like one second, let it think all the time. Right? Um, I think so. Like, kind of like you know, I think getting to the last like twenty five percent of our podcast, we could talk about some intrinsic stuff. And like Bob is like super stellar on just like, hey, like this is the profession. This is how we move forward. I want to talk about blameless culture for a second. So like yeah. I, I definitely got blamed for a lot of problems. Like I, I kind of missed the blameless culture portion of it. I was part of the blame culture. I, I don't know if Bob remembers my, my severe incident I had in our company. We worked together. I had to go to like a tribunal and explain the outage, right? Like, you know, it, and it, there's always like, well, what was the root cause of this? Why don't we talk? So one of the things that if you, if you're dealing with SREs, you're always brought in at the worst, like there's this romantic idea that you're firefighting all the time and that's super stressful. Like no one can survive. Like, you know, Oh, every time we're brought in, the metrics are red and like we immediately have to make a revenue decision. But, but a lot of stuff that Bob and his team does, Bob is more of a senior, like more of a staff, like you recently got promotion. Congratulations. Like you're helping for the thought of SREs that you're for now. Um, And it's more being proactive, but let's talk about in that firefight, the incident, like, how, can you tell us a little bit or tell the viewers or listeners a little bit about blameless culture? Like, there's no root cause. And that's very true. It's complicated. What, what, is, what does that mean? There's no root cause or there's blameless culture? Sure. Sure. So blameless culture is an idiom that says, hey, don't blame this particular person for an incident that might have occurred. So, you know, I'll use myself as an example because that's an easy one. Like, <laughs> let's just say I'm clacking away and I accidentally push code that does a, a thousand requests a second instead of 10 and I take down a service. So that's bad. That's very bad. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there could be business impacts for this. There could be emotional toil aspects of this. There could be all sorts of other things. So uh, classically in a software engineering setting, I would get blamed very hard for this. Like, Bob, why did you do this? Why didn't you test this better? Why didn't you, you know, X, Y, Z? Yeah, Bob. <laughs> yeah, Bob. But, but, we, but what we have to remember is that blame doesn't really help anything. It just gives the software engineer more strife and it makes them less likely to perform actions that are going to better the company. So a blameless, uh, a blameless culture or a, uh, is very important in software engineering these days to drive things forward. Very frequently when we have incidents at, um, at MailChimp, we do something called a post-mortem. So we go back and we discuss all the things that happened leading up to the incident uh, in order for the incident to happen. And we always do blameless post-mortems. So rather than saying, Bob pushed out the code that made uh, a thousand requests happen per second rather than 10, we say an engineer made, this, made a push for a thousand requests happen rather than a second. And that small, small change in words makes a big difference. It doesn't blame Bob for the incident that he caused. It allows people to be more objective about how to fix the problem. People aren't saying, oh man, Bob broke this again, really? <laughs> They're saying, it starts to help us to realize like, okay, well, maybe we should make a, a check in our continuous integration software that says, oh, you should, there's no reason we should ever be making a thousand requests a second in this particular uh, for this particular call, we should all we should limit it to a hundred, and we should have uh, we should throw back an error in our continuous integration when 
when somebody makes an egregious call like this in their software. That, that's so, huge, yeah. So having, bla having blameless culture allows you to be a little bit more innovative and it allows engineers to be a little happier. It really, like, I, I really believe that, right? Like, you know, it helps you build more resilient and robust systems to prevent problems. Cause it's one thing like, yeah, Bob created that. So like you, you will think like, oh, that's never going to happen again. We need to blame Bob. And so that situation, you know, only Bob would cause that versus like, if you say an engineer did it, it, it can happen to anybody. So you're more like in tuned in that generic approach to take a more generic protection right? Like we're not just going to cut off Bob's like get access, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that would be the ultimate, you know, protection. But um, it's like, you take a more generic approach saying this could happen to anybody and let's make it better for everybody. Like that, that was actually very succinct too, like blameless culture. Um, it's very funny. Like, you know, those, those postmortems are so important in agile software. There's a concept of a retrospective or a retro. So it's just bringing like, it's bringing software engineering rigor into an incident. Right, like, hey, we, we're engineers. Why did our engineering discipline stop at the incident? Like, it, it goes out the window sometimes. It's like fight or flight, right? Like, blah blah. I need to keep our job. Blah blah. You know, this person did that. Like, having that like that level of discipline. Like, you had discipline through ninety nine percent of the SDLC. Why did that one percent stop? <laughs> why, why did pandemonium occur? You know, and, and I think that's that's very critical for blameless culture. Very funny aside. I was teaching a class Tuesday night. Um, so we had about 30 users, like, so for a harness, like uh, we're a continuous delivery platform. So I had about 30 users in like Singapore and Australia. Like we're showing them how to like validate deployments with Prometheus on a Kubernetes cluster. And so I was just like, as guinea pigs, I was saying, I want to see how much like firepower, like I want to make a smaller cluster because I had a very large EKS cluster. And I thought the I opened up another terminal window and instead of running like a top command of the nodes, I actually ran the delete command at EKSCTL and it took the cluster down. So clearly I was the one to blame because everyone saw it on the, like you can see it on the screen recording. Like I'm like, uh, well, I guess class is over now because the cluster, cluster went <laughs> There's no postmortem in that one. It's just like Robbie did that. <laughs> Robbie did that. Um, That's blameful, Robbie. Oh, I know. An, an engineer did that. <laughs> yeah, an engineer. I like it. I want to say an engineer did that. I'm tracking up here. So like in our last couple couple of minutes while we're wrapping up, I always like the end of like this one question, like Bob, if you met Bob, you know, 15 years ago, what is like one piece of advice, you know, young Bob coming out of his graduate degree program at Clemson, like what would you tell Bob? Uh, go Tigers. Go Tigers, no. yeah. <laughs> so go Tigers. Yeah, go tigers. <laughs> uh, no, I, would tell, I would tell young Bob to be brave. Uh, make make changes that are going to help your business. Don't worry about the uh, don't worry about a resume as a service. Like don't care. <laughs> don't really don't try and implement the the new shiny thing just because it's a new shiny thing. Be pragmatic in your delivery of new bits of software. Mon like uh, you should always have some sort of monitoring tab open whenever you're uh, deploying new bits of software. Look for your errors quickly. Uh, People don't mind if you make mistakes if you remediate them quickly and be confident in your delivery and make sure that you measure twice and cut once. That's awesome, Bob. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Like very pragmatic advice. You know, definitely Bob is very skillful in the profession. You can catch Bob at local events and national events around SRE work. And yeah, you know, just thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Bob. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Cheers.